So should I should yeah. I just go? All right. You're running the show. This is the Cobain 50. <sighs> Hold on. <laughs> uh, playing Nirvana. The Cobain 50. Nirvana. Kurt Cobain's top 50 albums. Nirvana. From listener-powered KEXP. This is the Cobain 50 from listener-powered KEXP. I'm Martin Douglas. And I'm Dusty Henry. Welcome to the podcast. We're going through the top 50 albums according to Kurt Cobain, list from his journals. Uh, Martin, I'm so stoked to be doing this with you. We've both bonded over this list so much over the years and our love for Nirvana. Yeah, absolutely. I mean, this this extends far beyond our time at KEXP. This is from when we first met each other. I think we knew of each other's work, yeah. but started really started communicating with each other when we both were working for Seattle Weekly. Yeah, like truthfully, Martin slid into my DMs. <laughs> I remember because I was like tweeting about someone about Shabazz Palaces and then you messaged me like, hey, you're that other guy from Seattle Weekly, right? <laughs> and mm-hmm. I think you saw some wrestling story I did yep. and then like we just started talking. This is such a incredible moment to have years and years of just bantering and opinions between the two of us as friends to an official podcast from listener powered KEXP. Thumbs up. <laughs> Wholeheartedly agree. If you're friends with someone long enough, you're going to start a podcast <laughs> together at some point, right? <laughs> I mean, in this day and age, definitely. And, you know, this list, like, obviously influential for both of us um, as Nirvana fans, as music fans, influential for a lot of people. I know a lot of people who music taste was informed by this not just the two of us not just the two of us as kids you know this list extends to this very day with people you know we're we're talking about three decades after kurt passing on where people are still discovering new music weird music that they would have never listened to otherwise which i think is really cool totally agree and we're starting things off really strong. Uh, we're doing the list not in particular order, but this was number one on Kurt's list. We have no idea if, the, if this was a ranked list or not. But the first album, Raw Power by the Stooges. Martin, you're digging into the record from 1973. This is such an influential record. I can't begin to think what music would sound like had this album never been released. That's a strong way to get into it. Here's Martin Douglas on the Stooges' Raw Power. Sometimes revisionist history can be a good thing. Today, the Stooges are regarded as one of the greatest bands to ever play rock and roll music. Some might go so far as to say they're the greatest rock and roll band, and you'll find no argument for me there. Their first three albums practically drew the blueprint for punk music. But back in the band's halcyon days, the Stooges inspired visceral hatred from the music industry establishment. In their initial run, the Stooges played for apathetic and sometimes antagonistic crowds. They were considered a commercial failure, and with the exception of prescient rock critics such as Lester Bangs, they were largely reviled in the pages of mainstream rock magazines. Many reviews referred to the band as, among other things, tasteless, lousy, unimaginative, subliterate. A few of these adjectives were lifted from positive reviews. Now, a half-century removed from the spew of the Stooges' third album, Raw Power, 
we're feeling the influence of that raw power to this day. Here's someone you might know speaking on their influence in the 2016 documentary, Gimme Danger. I had actually heard a little bit or read a little bit either by or about these people. I had everything, every sort of record in the record store. I was the stooge who knew who John Cage was or knew Sun Ra, Carl Orr, Ventures, Carol Sanders, Whalers. Long before James Osterberg adopted the stage name Iggy Pop, he lived in a trailer park in Ypsilanti, Michigan, about 35 miles west of Detroit. In the fifth grade, he became fixated on becoming a drummer. So after his parents moved the family to Ann Arbor, they bought him a drum set. With that purchase, they also gave him the big bedroom in the trailer because, well, it was the only place a drum set would fit. Osterberg played with a number of bands in high school and the one year of college he attended. This includes the Iguanas and the Prime Movers. The latter band was where he was first given the nickname Iggy due to his stint playing drums in the former band, the Iguanas. After dropping out of the University of Michigan, Osterberg moved to Chicago in pursuit of an education in the blues. He began drumming for musicians like Johnny Young and Big Walter Horton when they had gigs playing for white audiences. Here's Osterberg again in Gimme Danger. I smoked a big joint one day by the river and realized that I was not black. After his return to Michigan, Osterberg was all but officially known as Iggy Pop and he was on a mission to form a band. He enlisted childhood friends and fellow misfits, brothers Ron and Scott Ashton and Dave Alexander. In 1967, they found a deteriorating home in Detroit, fresh off of one of the largest riots in American history. Here's another clip from Gimme Danger. We were real communists. We were not political at all, but we were true communists. We lived in a communal house. We ate the same food at the same time. We practically shared all money pretty equally. When we began to write songs, happily since we were too ignorant to realize that there was intellectual property, we shared authorship. Their group was originally called the Psychedelic Stooges, and after a phone call securing permission from Mo Howard, one-third of the famous Three Stooges, they shortened their name to simply The Stooges. At this point, they were well on their way to infamy. By the end of the 60s, the terror of the Manson family had already poked holes into all the flower power, free love bullshit. Originally well-intentioned enough by hippies, and then packaged and sold as a product by corporations. Rock and roll was at the time was being co-opted by a political industrial complex of corrupt performers and evil manager owners who were going to create whatever they thought was the best product for them, whether you want it or not. We're gonna shove this down your little throats. They rejected their own country and their own people. It's, a, it's cultural treason. The Stooges and their politically radical brethren, the MC5, 
were also doing their part to examine the decay of America underneath its colorful surface. Alongside their Michigan contemporaries and friends, the Stooges signed to a major label, Electra Records. They also found a kindred spirit in an original member of the Velvet Underground, another contemporary band that famously hated the ideals and aesthetics espoused by the quote-unquote Summer of Love. In 1969, a year after leaving the Velvet Underground, John Cale produced the Stooges' self-titled debut. It was arguably the spark that ignited the global punk rock movement, the very legacy Nirvana inherited about 20 years later. It was also a commercial failure, like many of the visionary canonical rock albums from the era. The next year, the Stooges added Steve McKay on saxophone and recorded their second album, Fun House. The full length was produced by Don Gallucci, the keyboardist for another seminal rock and roll band, The Kingsmen. Gallucci first tried standard issue recording techniques, such as isolating each track, which proved to be awful in the band's opinion. So they performed the tracks live, over and over and over again. One song for each day in the studio, and they picked the best take to use on the album. By replicating the band's legitimately dangerous live gig in the studio, Funhouse contained the immediacy the Stooges and their producer were looking for. Iggy Pop took inspiration from iconic blues singer Howlin' Wolf, and McKay's saxophone on side two of the album, especially on 1970 and free jazz style closer L.A. Blues, found the band once again sprinting ahead of their contemporaries. Despite their innovation, once again, album sales were abysmal. Only a select few critics changed their stance on the band for the better. Electro would opt out, vehemently opt out, of releasing a third Stooges album. They dropped the band from their label. In the face of the self-destructive nature of their live shows and growing substance abuse issues, Alexander was fired for showing up too drunk to play at Goose Lake Music Festival. It also didn't help that, by the time they found a new lead guitarist in James Williamson, everyone in the band except for Ron Ashton had developed a taste for heroin. The next year was full of disastrous live shows, and it became too much. On July 9th, 1971, the Stooges announced their breakup. While out in the trenches of the rock scene, Iggy Pop befriended a fellow forward-thinking musician, David Bowie. Iggy eventually hired Bowie's manager, who got him a two-album deal with CBS, now known as Columbia Records. Iggy Pop and James Williamson were sent to the United Kingdom to record what would have been Iggy's solo debut album, produced by Bowie. After unsuccessful attempts to find a suitable rhythm section, Iggy demanded the services of Ron and Scott Ashton, 
effectively reuniting the Stooges. Only this time, their name was slightly altered to highlight the band's transgressive, iconic lead singer, calling themselves Iggy and the Stooges. Here's Iggy talking about their 1973 album in Gimme Danger. As a guitarist, James fills the space as if somebody's just let a drug dog into your house, and it's big. And as he finds every corner of a musical premise and of a piece of space and time and fills it up with detail. On Raw Power, the Stooges proved to be a more muscular version of themselves. With the addition of Williamson, founding guitarist Ron Ashton reluctantly moved to bass. The Ashton Brothers' chemistry in the rhythm section offered a pummeling, supercharged foundation for Williamson to go wild on guitar, filling space with knife-edged leads and screaming solos. Iggy sings in a higher register on the opener's Search and Destroy. On Penetration, Williamson's guitar and the Ashton Brothers' rhythm section virtually creates the template for music for muscle car commercials. And Shake Appeal is basically a stripped-down James Brown 45 played at 78 BPM. The sludgy bass and grungy electric guitar of I Need Somebody was a clear predecessor to the quote-unquote Seattle sound and what Nirvana were doing 60 miles south in Olympia. Raw power, more often than not, sounds like it was tied to the back of a truck and dragged through mud. Raw Power ended up being largely praised by critics, a far cry from their first two records. Commercially, however, the band spent three weeks on the Billboard Top 200 chart, peaked at 183, and dropped off, never to return. Because of this, Columbia dropped the Stooges, and Iggy's continued use of heroin caused the band to be dropped by their management as well. Scott Ashton also struggled with drug problems, and the band was mostly destitute after its second breakup. But the legacy of Raw Power continued to grow after the disillusion of the Stooges. A handful of years later, Iggy Pop revived his career with his official solo debut, The Idiot. In spite of his struggles with substance abuse, Iggy eventually became a poster child for the working-class intellectuals who would populate the world of punk rock. The loud, primitive rhythms and untamed guitar solos of raw power also paved the way for hard rock and many strains of heavy metal. Steve Jones of the Sex Pistols reportedly learned how to play guitar by taking speed and playing along the raw power. What's more, the Pistols regularly covered no fun at their gigs. Here's another example. One, two, three, four. 
The Ramones didn't form because they liked each other very much personally. The Ramones formed because they were the only people they knew at their school who liked the Stooges. Furthermore, Henry Rollins and Thurston Moore repeatedly cited the massive influence of the Stooges and their landmark third record. And last but not least, Kurt Cobain has named Raw Power his favorite album of all time. Not only on the list that this very podcast is about, but numerous times in various places. The muscular drumming, the dirty bass, the way the guitar is played like it's on fire. They're all key elements to Nirvana sound. And it's safe to say those elements were taken directly from the Stooges. Well after their second breakup in 2010, the Stooges would be inducted into the Rock and Roll Hall of Fame. Not bad for a band that was once almost universally hated by the music industry. That was awesome, Martin, uh, digging into Raw Power by the Stooges. Um, so much great history in that record. Like, as you mentioned earlier, like, what would music be without this album? I'm kind of curious to hear from you. Uh, you know, there's not, I don't think there's a lot out there of Kurt talking about this record, but like, what do you think that he might have taken away from Raw Power or the Stooges? I feel as though there's definitely a musical. Well, I don't want to call it an aesthetic. I feel like the word aesthetic gets bandied about too much when we're talking about styles of art. But there's there's a feeling, there's a sound, there's something intangible to raw power that feels like a thread between that album and what Nirvana would do. Like I'm I mentioned it somewhat in the piece that you know, the guitars, the drums, just the the feel of the music really informs what Nirvana would do two decades later. I heard a lot of Ty Siegel in Raw Power in the song I Need Somebody. I imagined what a young Lane Staley was thinking or feeling the first time he heard that song. Like it's it's a clear antecedent to the whole Allison Chain sound. Yeah, I was totally the same way. It'd been a minute since I'd sat down with this record. Just I don't know if it's like one of those albums you kind of take for granted at a certain point because it's just always there. Mm-hmm. And then when when I put it on, I was like, oh, this is like like people use the word foundational a lot, but like this is like punk. 101 like to me it's like and, and it's great but it's like oh wow yeah you said ty siegel like you, you just hear all these bands that like this was the blueprint and like where they went with, with it from there is you know you get nirvana you get all these different bands but it's just crazy to hear like punk at its like most base level and you think about the fact that the stooges didn't sell a lot of records when they were first on the scene And it ultimately inspired hundreds, if not thousands of bands that did sell records and quite a few others that (laughs) didn't sell records themselves. Uh, Totally. I mean, I I was thinking about Bleach, Nirvana's first album, listening to this. Like, again, it's just like, yeah, this is where you start and then where you go from there. I was also thinking about 
I was thinking about Iggy and and Kurt as performers and just kind of the like before we started recording earlier, we were talking about the Reading performance uh, when Kurt came on, his wheelchair stumbled out and it's just the burst up and like like a rocket and. I don't know. Curious what you think about the, the any parallels with them between them as performers, because obviously Iggy's maybe possibly the best performer. At least one of the best performers I can think of in punk music. I think there is a spontaneousness to both the performances of Iggy and Kurt. Because you know, like you'd hear stories about Nirvana performances and Kurt, you know spontaneously launching himself into the drum kit and naturally as a parallel you would hear the same about Iggy Pop you know smearing peanut butter on himself which the front man of the dead boys was the person who handed Iggy the peanut butter <laughs> in that infamous Ohio performance so it's a it's a matter of taking the danger of the moment and conveying it through music, which was not standard issue, especially at the time of the Stooges. It was actually frowned upon and looked on with shock and horror. Yeah, that word danger kept coming to mind for me too, like as almost like a core tenement of punk rock as well. And like, you know, there's like the stories about Iggy like cutting himself up on stage and things like that, which you know, not condoning on this podcast, but <laughs> <laughs> um, but you know, just there's when Nirvana came on, it was like a different kind of danger. Like it's, it's kind of like not so much are you allowed to do this? It's more like are you allowed to talk about this? You mm-hmm. know, like I don't know. I don't know if that brings up anything for you, but like I, I keep thinking about Kurt and Iggy and like danger and like risk. Yeah. I keep coming back to like the danger of the moment and being in a situation where it's like, is somebody going to get hurt here? And I think in the, in the guise of music or quote unquote entertainment, that it's an attractive thing to witness genuine danger and both in their own ways they brought it to the masses it may be like stooges like you said they didn't sell a lot of records at the time but like they certainly infiltrated the public conscious at some level like i think a lot of people know who Iggy pop is now and and nirvana as well like it's interesting to bring that level of like antithetical nature to <laughs> the the masses in that way oh yeah absolutely and the sacrifice of having to, I mean, for for lack of, you know, a better or more defined term, like putting yourself in danger. <laughs> and the idea that so many people who witnessed this felt that sense of danger and felt a need to convey it similarly or convey it in their own individual way is really profound with that said thank you for listening to the very first episode of the Kobe 50 where we'll have lots and lots more uh, a few dozen more (laughs) episodes the audio for this episode was mixed by Roddy Nickpour our podcast manager is Isabel Khalili and Larry Mizell Jr. is our director of editorial my name is Martin Douglas and I'm Dusty Henry 
and we'll see you next week on the Cobain 50 from listener-powered KEXP, where the music matters. Welcome to Radio Lab. <laughs>